This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, Joe Water here with you for the Hack podcast. I'm filling in for Dave Marchese all this week on Hack. Now, are you someone who wears headphones or earplugs every day? I'm talking like all day, every day. You might not even have anything playing. You're just walking around, minding your own business in a bubble. Well, the rise of noise cancelling technology means that we can all tune out the outside world whenever we want. But guess what? Too much of it is actually not good for the brain and your brain starts overcompensating and doing weird things. We're going to find out about that later in the show. And we'll also hear about the desperate race to find survivors of the earthquake in Morocco that's left thousands of people dead. First, though, there was a major breakthrough with housing policy in Canberra today. Hack. Thousands of people in this country, people waiting decades for a public and community home, will get to move into that home. On Triple J. We know that housing affordability and rising rents is a major issue across the whole country. Well, the federal government has had an important bit of housing policy that they've been trying to get through Parliament for months. But the Greens and the Coalition were both blocking it in the Senate. The Coalition thought it went too far and the Greens didn't think it went far enough. Today we heard that the Greens have agreed to the policy and they've got an extra billion dollars as part of the agreement on top of another $2 billion that they'd already secured as part of negotiations. But if you're renting and you've been following this and you're hoping it might help you out, there's actually no major changes for you. To find out more with what, about what's in this agreement, I've got the Greens housing spokesperson, Max Chandler-Mather, with me. Max, thanks for coming on Hack again. Thanks for having me. Just to start with, can you tell me what you managed to secure in today's announcement? So at the start of this process, the Greens uh, and well, the Labor Party basically wouldn't guarantee a single cent uh, for public or community housing. Uh, what the Greens have secured today is $3 billion of immediate investment right now going out the door for public and community housing, uh, which is pretty transformative because that'll be thousands of public and community homes that people get to move into precisely because the Greens held firm and pushed Labor uh, to actually at least put some money directly into housing. Now, you got to the fact that we weren't able to push Labor to introduce a freeze and cap on rent increases. Mm. And that's really frustrating because, you know, we, our pressure forced and actually got National Cabinet to meet to discuss national renters' rights. That's the body that the Prime Minister chairs. And they refused to cap or freeze rent increases. So for us, the fight is only just beginning for renters. And I want to make that very clear. We don't see that this is the end of something today. We see this is the start of something. And we know there's going to be other bills that we're going to fight for a rent and freeze on cap on rents as well. Yeah, just on that, you did say, and you've been on hack saying that you were holding out to get a better deal for renters. You said the current policy didn't go far enough, but today you've supported it. I think a lot of people listening would be feeling let down. Why did you agree to what's on offer at the moment? Well, we went into this process and we said two things. We wanted extra direct investment in public and community housing, and we went said we wanted a freeze and cap on rent increases. We were able to secure an extra $3 billion. That's a lot of money for public and community housing. We were able to force National Cabinet to meet and discuss 
national renters' rights and at least start to move towards a plan. No, we weren't able to get a freeze and cap on rent increases. And yeah, that is really frustrating, but that's on the Labor Party. We put them in the position where they had the power to freeze and cap rent increases and they refused. Now, we never expected to get everything we wanted out of this uh, negotiation on this particular bill. And the reality is that we realised that Labor were actually just refusing to budge on freezing and capping rent increases. I think partly because they've been almost entirely captured by the property and real estate industry. But and to, to break that, that's going to take time. Do they provide any assurances that they would work with you on providing more support for renters through other legislation or are renters just, is this it? This is definitely not it. Like, I want to be very clear about that. I mean, look, from the Labor Party, they might think this is it at the moment. But let's be clear. A few months ago, Labor said there was no extra money available for public and community housing. They said there was not a single extra cent. And all of a sudden now there's $3 billion. So that shows that pressure works uh, and that campaigning works. And so, yeah, over the next few months, over the next few years, uh, we are going to use every opportunity we have to push the government into freezing and capping rent increases. Sure. And what I, what I said today in the press conference was if it takes getting to the uh, next federal election, uh, with Labor refusing to do anything on renters, and if it takes them losing the votes of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of renters, for them to realise they can't ignore the one-third of this country uh, that rents, then so be it. Uh, ideally, though, we'd like to see action before that. Yeah, and if this legislation passes, as it is intended to with the support of the Greens, haven't you lost some of that bargaining power here that you were going to use to support renters? Well, we use that bargaining power to get $3 billion of money that the government uh, uh, previously wasn't going to spend on public and community housing. And there will be renters that move into those homes. But the the reality is that uh, changing uh, a housing system dominated by banks, property developers, real estate agents is going to take time. And I want to make very clear, we're in this for the long haul. Like we're already planning our next campaigns now. We're having a, um, we're having um, campaign meetings tomorrow. Uh, we're working out where we're going to door knock next. We're working which which uh, housing bills that are coming up next over the next year that we can use as leverage to keep pushing for a freeze on cap on rent increases. For us, this fight is uh, ongoing, and and any good change, any large structural change, like for instance regulating rents and stopping them from going up in the same way that a lot of European countries do, that's not going to happen overnight. Um, but what I want to make very clear, and I think what should be clear today, is when the Greens stand up and fight back and push, our pressure actually works. And in this instance, our pressure has secured $3 billion extra for public and community housing. The federal government has said a number of times that renting is mostly a state issue and that they don't have the power to make a lot of these changes that you're calling for. Is that fair? Is that something that is legitimately outside of their control? Absolutely not. Uh, we just saw National Cabinet the body chaired by the Prime Minister and made up of uh, all the Labor premiers and first ministers. In fact, of the nine seats on that at that national cabinet, eight are held by the Labor Party. And they were discussing a plan uh, uh, or discussing a plan to introduce national renters' rights. Now, they eventually decided to refuse to freeze and cap rent increases, but the Prime Minister did have the power to put money on the table and incentivise and use national cabinet to freeze and cap rent increases. It's just that he refused. Now, uh, 
What I think that says, though, is for the next two years, every time someone rents go up, every time someone cops an unfair rent increase or is evicted because they can't afford the rent, that's on the Labor Party because they had the power to freeze and cap rent increases and they refused. And And I think now, for our perspective, the Greens are now the party of renters. We're the party in Parliament who are going to fight as hard as we possibly can uh, to get some relief for the millions of people who rent. You've mentioned um, a lot of this funding. Well, the funding is going towards community and public housing. I think a lot of people might actually not know exactly what Mm. community housing is and what that model is and how that's going to help the broader housing system or if it will. Can you just explain that a little bit? Sure. So community housing are basically uh, homes provided by not NGOs or non-for-profit housing providers where they build a home often with subsidies from the government or help from the government and they rent it out for 25 at a capped rent. So often it's 25% of a person's income. But rather than like public housing, which is managed by the government, this is managed by non-for-profit housing providers. So it's very similar to public housing, but uh, there are some uh, key differences. In particular, it's not controlled by the government, it's controlled by non-for-profit housing providers. Right. We've had a number of messages coming in. Um, a listener's just texted in saying you can't freeze rents, so you'd have to freeze mortgage rates as well. It's about supply and demand. A lot of people are actually messaging and saying about rising interest rates, how much of a problem that is mm. for the whole system. Um, what's your response to that? Uh, I think you're bang on about the need to tackle uh, interest rates. The Greens have actually said for a long time that uh, the federal government should have used their powers, existing powers, to stop the Reserve Bank from uh, increasing interest rates because inflation was not being driven by wages or ordinary people buying extra things at the supermarket. It's being driven by corporate profiteering. We just saw Coles and Woolworths record billion-dollar-plus profits. The Commonwealth Bank has just recorded a record $10 billion profit, price-gouging mortgage holders. And so what we said to the government was, instead of increasing interest rates, introduces super profits tax on those large multinational corporations because your listeners are right. Mortgage holders are getting screwed over as well. Um, that's all we've got time for. We've got to move on, unfortunately. But thank you once again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, that is Green Spokesman Max Chandler-Mather. Max, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. No worries. Hack. 2,000 people have been killed and thousands more are now homeless. On Triple J. If you're someone who walks around every day wearing headphones, please stick around because in a minute we're going to find out why too much noise cancelling isn't always a good thing. First, though, more than 2,000 people have died in Morocco after an earthquake struck the region on Friday evening local time. The epicentre was about 70 kilometres southwest of the popular tourist town of Marrakesh, and it's the strongest and deadliest quake that the country has seen in the past century. The UN estimates that 300,000 people have been left without homes and running water by the quake. April McLennan has the latest. This was the moment a 6.8 magnitude earthquake hit Morocco. Suddenly dust fell from the sky, then everything came down. All we could think of was to run. This woman jumped from her third-storey rooftop as the walls of her home came crashing down. It's very dangerous for me. Everything is collapsed. There is nothing left. The epicentre was in Morocco's high Atlas Mountains. 
It's about 70 kilometres southwest of the popular tourist town of Marrakesh. Here, the earthquake was deadly for the people living in the hundreds of villages scattered throughout the region. Someone has died in every family here. People don't have electricity. They have nothing to eat or drink, no bread, nothing. Many buildings made of mud brick, stone and wood were reduced to rubble and whole towns have been completely flattened. It's now a race against time to pull survivors out from under the debris. And experts have warned that after day three, the chance of survival for those trapped drops off considerably. For some, it's already too late. There are still people buried here in this house. They didn't get the rescue they needed, so they died. I rescued my children and I'm trying to get covers for them and anything to wear from the house. Damaged roads have left some of these isolated villages completely cut off. There are a lot of blocked roads, a lot of people can't find their parents and a lot of people are still under the rubble. People are still searching for their relatives. Everything went down on them, the mountains, their homes. For those who did make it out alive, many are now homeless, left with nothing but the clothes on their back. Some survivors have been building makeshift shelters on the side of the road with bamboo and tarps. We're waiting for help from the gods, not from humans, because we haven't had any help so far. They're already digging holes to bury the dead, with some mass graves needed due to the number of bodies. But despite the death and tragedy, there's still tourists travelling to the country, some continuing on their holiday like nothing has happened. Hack on Triple J. That was April McLennan reporting. Now, Emma French is a young Australian tourist and she was staying just outside Marrakesh when the earthquake hit and she's with me now. Emma, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Hack. Yeah, no worries. Can you just tell me, where were you when the earthquake happened on Friday? I was at a hotel and I was in bed, ready about to go to sleep. It happened exactly 11.11 p.m. and then it just shook everything. Obviously, it's an earthquake. <laughs> um, lights turned off and every everything was, there was alarm going off and didn't know what to do. So yeah, I had to evacuate the hotel and there was some damage in the hotel, like some cracks, not where I was, thankfully. Then we sat outside next to the pool for five hours. I, I think we got back in at like 5.30 in the morning to the hotel because they were checking to see if everything was okay for the building. Um yeah, it was quite scary. <laughs> yeah, what was it like that time waiting there? Did you have a sense of what was going on around you as well at that point in time? Did you have much information? Um, we just saw that the death toll was going up, but we didn't really kind of out of it because we were a little bit out of town and um, didn't see like destruction that much. And then we realised once we like started looking into it that it was actually really bad, especially for the um, old town. And what have things been like since there? What is the atmosphere and what are you seeing around you after you know, it's such a, a devastating earthquake? Uh, it's quite horrible to walk around the city centre. There's Normally it's like so many people just everywhere and it's just like there's hardly any of the shops open. Um, there's rubble everywhere, just destruction. There's people crying in the streets. Um, there's people living in the parks because their homes got destroyed. It's just, yeah, <laughs> it's really horrible. <laughs> and obviously you, you've been there as a as a tourist. What, has that been a weird experience being there then obviously seeing 
this devastation, but also seeing all the consequences that are playing out with um, the local community. Yeah, it's been <laughs> been really hard for me. Um, <laughs> just like some other tourists um, still going out drinking like the night after. And I just couldn't understand <laughs> how they could do that. And they know just like people like died around the corner from them and they're just like, oh, let me just have a beer. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> My God, that's, yeah, awful. And and such a scary thing to go through yourself as well, just to, to be um, to be there and have had that happen. It's like obviously, yeah, really shaken you up. Uh, I feel like it's more just because I was like safe. Yeah, and just like the response from other tourists. So just, oh, it's like being in an alternate universe. I just can't believe that that's like people's reaction to a natural disaster. And can you just describe, like, for someone that hasn't been there, normally what Marrakesh is like and what it was like when you were first there? I was in the square, like, I think, like, 5 o'clock till, like, 8, eight o'clock, I think it was. I mean, it was just people everywhere. There's bustling, like, just so many market stalls and food stalls and everything like that and just people everywhere. It's, like, it's very, it's very chaotic. Um, <laughs> very alive and vibrant, cool. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the day after, had it all, like you said, it had all kind of essentially shut down and was in recovery mode? I went in on Sunday, so two days later, and everything was still kind of not as it was. Like, yeah, even today probably isn't how it would be. Everything was just shut down. Well, I'm really glad you're safe and thank you so much for having a chat to us. I really appreciate it. No worries. (laughs) That's Australian tourist Emma French. Now, just before we chat about all things noise cancelling, I've got some important news for you about the referendum. So listen up. As you know, the referendum on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament is happening on the 14th of October and everyone who's enrolled has to vote. Well, today the writs were officially issued and that's a fancy way of saying it's officially on, basically. Why that is important for you is that it means that you've got until next Monday to enrol to vote or update your address. The cutoff is 8pm next Monday. At the moment, the enrolment rate for 18 to 14 year olds, sorry, 18 to 24 year olds is around 90%. So if you're in that 10% who aren't enrolled to vote, you've got till Monday. Or if your friends are in that category, let them know. It's eight o'clock next Monday. You can head to the Australian Electoral Commission website to find out more, or we've also got all the information for you on Hack's Instagram. Hack. The ear, although it's very small, is highly complicated. On Triple J. Yeah, if you're in the Triple J office most days with me or my colleagues, firstly, congrats, it's very fun. But you probably see me most of the time wearing my headphones. And a lot of that time, I'm not actually listening to anything. I'm just tuning out everything around me. I just have, I'm in my own little bubble, basically. And it's not just me because noise cancelling headphones and earplugs All these kinds of devices are more popular than ever. But it turns out that actually too much silence can also be a bad thing. And having those noise cancelling headphones on all the time can mess with your ear sensitivity. Our reporter Nathan Nigidula has decided to push this to the limits. Ah, noise cancelling headphones. I couldn't live without them, and I'm not the only one. 
Do you have noise cancelling headphones? I do, yeah. I wear them while I'm at the gym. I'll wear them when I'm doing like admin work and I want something on in the background. I'll wear them when I'm walking in the street. They are important to me. They um, zone out distractions. I also use them when I'm washing dishes at home so I can focus on just washing the dishes and not people trying to talk to me. There are some great things about noise cancellation. It can help lower anxiety, help us focus, and you can listen to music at lower volumes, preventing hearing loss. But having these on all the time could be a problem. Dr. Prabhu is a specialist at the All India Institute of Speech and Hearing. Here's what his research says. Noise cancelling headphones, earplugs and other tools may provide relief in the moment, but they can have long-term effects on your sensitivity. You know that feeling when you take off your headphones and you become super aware of sounds around you? Dr. Prabhu's research says if you're wearing them too much, it could have long-term effects on your hearing sensitivity. Wearing noise cancellation headphones temporarily is okay, but if we use it for a longer time, what happens is our brain thinks there's no auditory input coming in. So the brain tries to put extra input and the problem actually becomes worse. The extreme version of this is called misophonia. It's a type of hearing hypersensitivity where people have intense emotional reactions to everyday sounds, ones that most people wouldn't even notice. All of this got me thinking, if cutting out too much noise is a bad thing, what's the extreme? Well, it turns out Triple J has a room downstairs called an anechoic chamber. This is a room built for testing sound equipment. This room is so good at blocking out noise that it can even cause you to hallucinate. So I thought I'd go sit in there for an hour and see firsthand the effects of too much silence. I'm pulling the timer up on my phone. Here we go. Stopwatch. The hour starts now. First impressions. I can hear like ringing in my ears already. There's no echo when you come into this room. So it's very dry. It's like you walk in and there's nothing. Ooh, I, I really don't like that. It sounds like the silence is getting louder. It's like this really intense ringing. It feels like this pressure like bouncing off the walls and into my mind. <laughs> this is whack. We're 22 minutes in. I'm very dizzy. I feel like... Oh my god, this is so weird. Oh, it doesn't feel good. Walking does not feel good. I have to sit down. I don't know if this is healthy, man. I think I'm starting to get a really intense headache. And I'm considering leaving at the half hour mark. Alright, so we're 44 minutes in. I've spent the last 15 minutes in total silence. Look, it's been pretty good. I feel like I got over the hump. You really get used to it after a while. You know, there was definitely a groove that you get into. Your ears kind of adjust. It just feels like any other room. You know, just like a really quiet room. Three, two, one. We made it. One hour in the anechoic chamber. Hallucinated a tiny bit, got a tiny bit sick, but you know what? We conquered it. What a great experience. I'm going to do this every week. <laughs> no, never again. I'm just going to pop out now and I'll, I'll let you know the immediate difference. Here we go. Oh my God. There's actually such a huge difference. Oh my God. I feel like I can hear everything. Hack on Triple J. 
That was Hack reporter Nathan Nikidula putting his body and his ear and his brain on, oh my God, his brain on the line with that. On the text line, James in Bundjalung Country says, I love reality cancelling headphones. I like the name for it. Thank you, James. Now, to find out a bit more about this and if too much of a good thing is no longer good for us, I've got Professor David McAlpin with me. He's the Academic Director of Hearing at Macquarie University. Professor McAlpin, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks very much, Jay. Just to start with, I've heard that you've got one of these anechoic chambers. Is that right? How did you That's feel? That's right. Yeah. Did you relate to Nathan's experience? Uh, Is that I was pretty thinking accurate? myself walking through that space just as he said it. It's not a space I like to spend a lot of time in myself, I have to be honest. So, uh, yeah, I don't like that, mostly because I have tinnitus, which is that ringing in the ears, which is very, very commonly experienced when you're in an anechoic chamber, as we just heard. Right, so it actually turns up your, your ringing in your ears. Is that what well, happens? Mine's turned you're... up from a very noisy party about 30 years ago, and I've had it ever since, but I really notice it when I'm in that room. Was it one party? One party got me, so a noise-induced injury. I should have known better, um, and that was it. Now, just more broadly on this, would you say we've been hearing, even just on the text line, so many people relating to walking around all the time wearing noise-cancelling headphones, earplugs, things like that. Is our modern society noisier? Is this something that, from an evolutionary perspective, that we, we can't cope with and that's why we're using these devices? Well, we certainly can't cope with it. It seems that there is a lot more noise impacting on us. So it's not just very loud noises, so nightclub noise or street uh, works noise. It's even that background hum. And we know that that background hum of traffic uh, can really affect our cardiovascular system. It could really be intrusive. And so in an evolutionary sense, we haven't really been used to it. Some animals are. Birds regenerate their hearing if they go deaf because they really needed it. Uh, they learn how to sing, they feed, they have to procreate all through using this sort of bird song. And humans really didn't have that protection in their hearing. So just in terms of hearing loss from noise, that's something that makes us very different. And now we're really exposed to the sorts of levels of sound we really couldn't have produced you know, even 100 years ago. Yeah, is this like a broader societal design failure that we we don't consider noise pollution in the way that we consider a lot of, I know, a lot of impacts on other public spaces and how we design public spaces and especially, I guess, like cumulative impacts of lots of noises? We really don't have any acoustic ergonomic design really built in. We think about the visuals, we think about a whole range of things. Lots of buildings are retrofitted once people find out they're impossible for listening, that they've got too much echo or they're too noisy. And what you find out too is that all this open plan office perspective, people don't communicate more. They stick their headphones on because that constant level of noise is distracting and in some cases is triggering people's uh, very negative responses. Do you think overall that, um, I mean, are you surprised that so many people are turning to noise cancelling headphones or earplugs? Or do you think in moderation it is a fairly good thing that people are doing? Well, it's the only option we're given. We're not being given the option of quieter trains or less noisy cars or less busy streets. We're, we're basically given something that says, well, not only if you're commuting, are you are you uh, having to commit to hearing the noise of the train or a car, you're also having to compete with other people and their own audio. So if you can hear someone else's audio through their headphones, which you generally can, then you're going to put it on your own headphones. So we've allowed ourselves to be co-opted into this noisier environment uh, without really understanding what it's doing to our rest of our lives and our emotional state, our blood pressure and our brains, as we heard. And a lot of people, myself included, as we're saying, um, you know, use noise-cancelling headphones for 
productivity, I guess, like to zone in open plan offices to kind of like tune out everything else. Is there any research or is that a thing that noise affects our productivity? Well, we know it's going to be distracting. So in those cases, it's a good idea. But we also know that we connect to our environments, not just other people, but even the room and the space we're in, we feel connected to spaces through our hearing. So lots of our perception of where we are comes from the echoes that come off the wall. We can't perceive most of these echoes unless it's, say, another grand car park, but we feel like we're in the room. And we heard there about the anechoic chamber. You kind of feel lost in it because there's no nothing coming back from the walls to tell you which room you're in. Is it a library? Is it a bathroom? So we lose that connection. And people who have hearing loss, impairing hearing loss, and they wear hearing aids, they're, uh, one of their biggest issues is they can't feel connected to the environment, not just what people are saying. So we our ears help us connect to where we are. And, of course, we don't have eyes at the back of our head. We've got ears so we can hear what's behind us. Noise-cancelling headphones can often reduce our sense of spaciness and a sense of self-awareness in space. And as we're saying on the flip side, what happens to our brain if we screen out too much sound and we're kind of constantly in this cocoon state? Well, we should just distinguish, we heard the word misophonia, which is not quite the same as hyperacusis. Hyperacusis is this mm-hmm. oversensitivity to all sounds. Misophonia is a very specific disorder where people don't like, they get triggered by sounds like drinking, chewing, breathing. They're very panic-inducing or disgust-inducing. So that's slightly different. So misophonia has got a perspective of your brain really not liking these very common sounds, and it may be that you're more sensitive to those sorts of sounds per se. But this concept of let's get rid of all the sound, well, once you get the sound back, it sounds louder. But more importantly, uh, there is evidence showing that if you were wearing earplugs for days on end, a few days on end or a lot, you can get tinnitus kicking in, and tinnitus in some cases doesn't go away. So we really have a brain that's not just waiting for sound. It's trying to um, give us the sound we need. And when it doesn't experience it, it fills in and gives you this hallucination that there is a sound there when there isn't. That's called tinnitus. So we have to be careful. Yes, we use them for um, getting rid of dangerous sounds. That's great. But you can't wear them the whole time. And often when you're wearing them, you're actually putting sounds into your ears like your music. And it may be too loud anyway. It may be damaging sound levels. It's not just what you don't like as noise. If it's what you like, you tend to crank it up and that can also damage your hearing. So we've got to be careful about that trade-off. Everything in moderation, I think that's the key. Professor McAlpine, that's all we've got time for, but thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you very much. That was Professor David McAlpine from Macquarie University. That's it for the Hack podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Bye. Hack on Triple Jack.